Open Source is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep the world's first podcast going strong. 15 years and counting. Find us at patreon.com slash radio open source. And thank you. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. In the annals of public conversation, we seem to have reached toxic meltdown in the close of the mighty Mueller investigation. We are past the liar, liar, pants on fire stage in a race to the bottom. Donald Trump is leading and winning the race as usual, but he's not alone. The collusion that jumps out of the Russiagate scandal is in the news business. It's the tight harness that binds Sean Hannity to Donald Trump, and equally, Rachel Maddow and the baying hounds at MSNBC to the Democratic leadership that guessed wrong yet again about how to be rid of this president. It isn't journalism that's driving this, not people politics either. It's more like a low-class culture war, a ratings war, no rule book, no restraint, a race you wouldn't want any of these players to win. So we look back this hour at the storytelling, which is still being told. Catch the tone of the post-Muller commentaries this week from Rachel Maddow on MSNBC and Sean Hannity at Fox News. What Attorney General William Barr has just given to Congress really does raise a lot of questions. If you're under the influence of a foreign adversary, that's not necessarily a crime. And it may not relate at all to Russia's interference in the 2016 election. But if there are people in the administration or if there are people in the campaign who were operating under the influence of a foreign adversary, that would definitely be important for us to know as a people. When it comes to the, the bottom line for this moment in American history, when it comes to the bottom line that we have just been through a remarkable thing, we have been through a circumstance in which a hostile foreign adversary launched a complex and sophisticated attack to interfere with our presidential election so they could help get their favored candidate into the White House, and he, in fact, got into the White House. When it comes to that bottom line, can we expect President Trump and the Trump White House to finally accept the underlying factual record that Russia did, in fact, attack us? But TikTok, how long do we have to wait? Stay with us. Let's start with Rachel Maddow's audience. They have been sold one conspiracy theory night after night after night. 22 months, she has profited from these lies to her audience on a spectacular level. Frankly, she and her so-called colleagues, so-called mainstream media, so-called journalists, they should be embarrassed tonight. They should feel humiliated tonight. They should be apologizing tonight to the American people. I am not in any type of celebratory mood here tonight in any way. I am pissed off and so should the rest of the country be over what has happened. This must be a day of reckoning for the media, for the deep state, for people who abuse power, and they did it so blatantly in this country. If we do not get this right, if we do not hold these people accountable, I promise you, with all the love I can muster for this country and our future for our kids and grandkids, we will lose the greatest country God has ever given man. We have top-notch help in rerunning the tape of this story. The novelist Nicholson Baker, who took in the cable rage, Jill Abramson, who used to run the New York Times, Aaron Maté, who detailed the news blundering for The Nation magazine, and Masha Gessen, who knows Russia, hates Putin, and doubted the Russiagate story 
all along. Matt Taibbi strikes the keynote. Matt, you wrote a piercing review for Rolling Stone online this week. It's taken the conversation by storm. The conclusion was, your conclusion was, it's hard to imagine commercial news media getting its dignity back after Russiagate. A charge of groupthink, or, or maybe fraud. Where do you begin? Well, I think you have to start with the fact that from the very beginning, um, the story, there, there were really two different stories that were told to us. And neither of them have really been fully confirmed. But the first one was that Russia hacked the DNC and leaked uh, emails to WikiLeaks, which in turn uh, disseminated them. Uh, Then there was another story that this was done in collusion with Donald Trump uh, as some kind of intelligence quid pro quo. Uh, There was an improper... Uh, espionage relationship between the Trump campaign and some kind of Russian uh, state apparatus. And I think one of the things that happened very early on is that those two narratives became conflated, Mm. and we continually assumed uh, that all these things were true, and they were continually represented uh, to audiences as if they were fact and as if uh, the special counsel, Robert Mueller, would eventually, inevitably, find evidence of collusion that would end the Trump presidency. And there's another story that now has to be examined very seriously. It, it, it's not new, but we never took it at all seriously, that the Obama White House did spy on the Trump campaign, authorized under the so-called FISA warrants, foreign intelligence surveillance. Um, isn't this the new the new big story to be dealt with? Well, I think there's going to have to be a lot of work done um, going back over the entire history of, of what this whole affair was all about. I mean, one of, one of the major criticisms that I had or, or, you know, of this whole story was that we, we looked at it a lot in terms of what Trump might be guilty of, but we never really thought about the story in total. What, what did it actually mean? When did it start? The origin story of, of Russiagate is still completely mysterious. We've heard a couple of different versions of how it started, that uh, it began with an investigation with Carter Page by the FBI, then Papadopoulos, then there's another story. The that Steele dossier. Yeah, right, the Steele dossier. So it, it would be great to go back and find out exactly how this all got started and exactly who was, who was investigating whom. And, you know, if, if that included surveillance, um, we have to find out exactly under what, under what terms. I assume you know a lot of where it began, Matt, because you've got a book halfway to the press on the whole thing. You're, this was just sort of your new lead. Yeah, I mean, I, I've been I've been looking at it for for a couple of years, but um, but no, I, 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 that whole part of it, I, I can't say that I have a, a you know a blockbuster thing waiting. But um, but I, when I did you think... sense there's something fundamentally wrong hiding in in plain sight here? Well, the first thing that really, really bothered me was the way the uh, Steele report was released to the public. Um, and you might remember there was a sequence of events in the first and the second week of January 2017 when the, the four intelligence chiefs, James, James Comey, uh, James Clapper, uh, John Brennan, and uh, Admiral Rogers uh, supposedly met uh, President-elect Trump and handed him the Steele dossier, and we know from James Comey's notes that he there was a sort of promise that 
um, we're concerned that this blackmail material is out there and we're going to keep this close held. Don't worry. And within about 10 minutes, basically the entire press corps knew about that meeting, that supposedly top secret meeting, which provided the exact pretext that the media needed to report uh, on the existence of this dossier. And then in very short order, the entire dossier was was published by BuzzFeed in in another uh, historic moment because they did it knowing that the entire thing was not verified and even said so at the opening. So um, that sequence of events troubled me a lot because it seemed like that there was a news event that was created specifically in order to get that inf- that private, unverified information into our hands. And who who distinguished him or herself by by buying it and promoting it and and telling it? Well, one of the things that happens a lot in these stories is, is that the intelligence services, you know, they're, they're smart about how they go about this. They they always um, tend to dole out scoops. Uh, in relatively even doses to to all the major news organizations, but I think as as time went on, I think it, w- it was pretty clear that that uh, MSNBC, in particular, was a was a leading driver of this story, right. and it became a sort of nightly theater every night for people to tune in, especially to Rachel Maddow's show to see. Uh, what the latest developments in the scandal were. And, and it, it didn't go without notice that MSNBC's uh, uh, ratings went up by 62% in the first year after the election, which was an incredible number. And it was almost entirely due to the selling of this story. Don't we have to say that Rachel Maddow becomes the representative hysteric on the case? But more interesting to me, John Brennan, former chief of the CIA, becomes the representative spook. He He, he was often on MSNBC, and he was virtually married by the New York Times in a, in a, New York, in a Sunday magazine profile that made him uh, innocent. He was saying that, that the president of the United States was guilty of treason. Yeah, and this is another thing that happened during this time period that, to me, represented a, an, an incredible corruption of the news media. Here, here's somebody who was, you know, a, a critical part of the story, who was, who was whose role in, in how this all got started is still not completely known. And uh, as he left government, um, this person, who incidentally had a record of lying to Congress, right. um, you know, seamlessly transitions into becoming an, a member of the media, commenting upon the very news story that, that, that he's had a, a tremendous influence over. And this happened a lot. The, the, you know, similar to the situation with the WMD episode before the Iraq War, Suddenly, the airwaves were flooded with intelligence people and people from the Pentagon and uh, all these folks commenting on the nature of the Russian threat. And there was nobody, basically, to represent the idea that maybe there are some holes in the story. Maybe we should, you know, at least wait to see what this all means before we start jumping to, conclu- to conclusions. And nobody so even, think- nobody even crediting the, 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 the myth that somewhere there's a deep state that doesn't like Donald Trump. And they're, they're out to get him actively every day in the news media. Well, right. I mean, imagine how this looks to people who voted for Donald Trump. I mean, they, you know, Donald Trump is out there talking every day about how the news media is out to get me, the deep state is out to get me. 
And, you know, every day you're turning on cable news and it's full of people who are representatives of the intelligence community talking about a story that they say they have tons of evidence for but can't provide um, and that this all means dire consequences for Trump and the walls are closing in and this is the beginning of the end. We heard this over and over again. I think this was very emotionally manipulative to audiences because people were very mm. devastated by the election of Donald Trump. And when we were to- they were told over and over again that any minute now he might be walked out of the White House in handcuffs, and that kept them coming back and tuning in. But, you know, it wasn't really true in the end. And I think that that is going to be a, a tremendous blow to the, the reputation of the news media going forward. We've got to consider going forward in this program how Donald Trump is has recast or the whole situation has recast the 2020 election. But also, you're talking about very, very significant damage to the already weakened mainstream media, news and television in this whole country. I mean, there's a sense of something profound uh, underway. Coming up, the, the Russian-American writer Masha Gessen, who's fiercely anti-Putin and anti-Trump, who said from the start that the idea of a conspiracy between the two was a trap. This is Open Source. Masha Gessen has the authority of a dissenting citizen attuned to culture and politics in both her countries, Russia and the United States. A month after the Trump inauguration in 2017, Masha Gessen wrote in the New York Review of Books that Russiagate was, in her words, a media campaign orchestrated by members of the U.S. intelligence community. She thought it unlikely that any criminal allegations would bring down Trump. She's reflecting with us here on the end of the Mueller investigation. You know, a week later, I think we're in the very bizarre place where everybody seems to have dug in. Um, at the same time, I fear that it's more of the same. It's more pinning our hopes onto something that's never going to deliver for a variety of reasons. The basic sort of desire under those hopes is that we will somehow discover that Donald Trump is not of us, mm-hmm. that Donald Trump came from outer space or at least came from Russia, and somehow he can just be canceled. Right. The Russia story was the perfect skyhook to get him out because it was so big and so comprehensive. From your perspective, what drove that pin it on the Russians drive? Well, I think a couple of things. One is that, um, you know, we saw this Russia narrative coming out of the Clinton campaign back in August, September 2016. Now, obviously, the Clinton campaign had reason to sound the alarm about Russia. The campaign had been hacked, and it's very clear that they had valid concerns. But I also think there was a lot of sort of Washington inertia, this Cold War narrative uh, that is still the most powerful narrative in Washington. Right. And some of us even thought Trump was part right. We'd be better off with a healthy, grown-up relationship with Russia. Well, I actually happen to disagree. (laughs) Go ahead. And you're the authority on Putin. Thank you. But um, I'm not a proponent of making peace with bad faith actors. Everything we know about Putin is that he will lie in every negotiation. He will break every promise. 
Uh, we also know that he is a bloody dictator who jails his opponents and murders his opponents and murders journalists. You know, I don't think it is good for the moral fabric of this country to have good relations with Russia. I also think it is pointless because every negotiation that this country has had with Russia over the last now nearly 20 years has in one way or another ended with Russia sort of breaking its promises. I very much doubt that Donald Trump could be the first American leader to suddenly be able to hold Putin to his word. I've wondered from the beginning, does Putin's intelligence about Trump, steel report or no steel report, give him the sort of whip hand over the president of the United States? Well, there's a hell of an assumption there, right? And the assumption is that Trump can be shamed. Interesting. <laughs> well, at some level, the answer's got to be yes. I think that the only thing that could possibly be shameful to Trump is that he's not as wealthy as he claims to be. <laughs> Interesting. There's nothing that we know that would indicate that Russia has leverage over Trump. And what's even more important, I think, is that having leverage over Trump is not required hmm. as an explanation for what we have seen over the last two and a half years. Trump is consistently enamored with every strong man in the world. He loves Putin and he loves Duterte and he loves Netanyahu and he would probably love Erdogan if Erdogan would let him. And he loves Kim Jong-un. I mean, he has told us that he fell in love with Kim Jong-un. He just loves these guys. And there's something slightly arbitrary about singling out Putin and saying that Trump's love for Putin requires a special explanation. Just the dynamics of these two men is so fascinating going forward. The two big guys in the world doing things, and it can sound like detente, it can sound like who knows what. What are the possibilities that you worry about and that, or that you could encourage? I worry about United States foreign policy in general. I worry about the gutting of the State Department. I worry that the State Department is run by Mike Pompeo. I worry that the U.S. has withdrawn from uh, the Paris Accords. I worry that the U.S. has completely relinquished its moral voice in the world. I worry that Trump has recognized Israeli annexation of the Golan Heights. I worry that under President Trump, the United States is becoming a 600-pound gorilla that is aiding all that is bad in this world. Hmm. Russia is a part of that picture. There's nothing special, again, about Russia in that sense. Coach us Americans on looking at Putin in a tough-minded way, but with some constructive business on the table. In simple human terms, you don't go and try to have constructive business with somebody who you know hmm. is going to lie to you every time. That's dumb. Russia is not necessarily an existential threat to the United States, but Russia is very much a threat to the moral integrity of this country because not having any kind of values at the basis of American foreign policy, which is something that actually has been a trend for quite a long time, but has taken an absolute quantum leap under President Trump, that's a threat to this country's sense of itself and ultimately to, to its democracy. And so the other way to think about it is the, to think of it as in moral terms. Is it right to try to do business with somebody who jails and kills the opposition? 
is it right to try to find a constructive relationship with somebody who has invaded two neighboring countries and annexed their territory? I don't think it's right. Given these two scoundrels that you see out there, and we all do in a way, aren't you surprised that the Mueller investigation didn't turn up serious malfeasance, indictable and impeachable? No, I'm not at all surprised because, um, I mean, first of all, the Mueller investigation found a lot of serious malfeasance, just not necessarily on the part of the president. Okay. I mean, his campaign manager is in jail and is going to stay there for a while. That's no small thing. But the kind of narrative that we're expecting, or that a lot of people were expecting Mueller to produce, the kind of narrative that would have shown that Trump was consciously involved in a relationship with Russia that would have benefited his campaign, that there are a lot of assumptions there that actually contradict what we know about both Russia and Donald Trump. And in this way, the Trump campaign and the Russian presidential administration are quite similar. They're incompetent, they're chaotic, they're full of hustlers, each of whom is trying to sell a bill of goods. Mm. So like, for example, you know, the famous Trump Tower meeting, it was very clear to those of us who know anything about Russia from the very beginning, that this woman, Natalia Veselnitskaya, the lawyer, you know, who became in the American imagination a Kremlin emissary, was not a Kremlin emissary. She is a small-time hustler who was trying to do well by her client by bluffing. And she sat down at a table with a similar kind of hustlers who were bluffing that they were running a presidential campaign, that none of them were, were planning to win. And then this idiotic, unlikely group of hustlers ends up in the White House. And we want that to make some sort of sense. We want a story to emerge that has villains in it and that has an explanation for how something so horrifying but also so ridiculous could have happened to us. And that story just isn't there. It is absurd, it is ridiculous, and it just happened. Masha Gessen is giving the Tanner Lectures at Harvard University next week. Our guest, Jill Abramson was Washington bureau chief and then managing editor of the New York Times till she finally was the first woman in the precarious top editorial job at the paper through the middle years of President Obama's term when she was ushered out. Jill Abramson recovered wonderfully to write a searching long look at big media in life or death transition. Her focus on BuzzFeed, Vice Media, The Washington Post, and The New York Times. The book is called Merchants of Truth. It's too grand a subject to get around this hour, Jill. I want to get your scorecard, though, on the times in the Russiagate era. How bad, compared to the Iraq War, WMD, the Hillary Clinton campaign? I I think, Chris, that it's absolutely ridiculous to equate the coverage of Russia's interference in our election with the, you know, very flawed coverage of WMD. Uh, it, it, you know, one is related to a war in which many people were killed. Uh, here, you know, nobody died. And, you know, I think there's a rush to judgment right now to condemn 
the press's coverage of Russia's election interference and, you know, a supposed plot with, with you know, Trump and, and his campaign aides uh, because we haven't, none of us have hmm. seen the Mueller report. We just found out today that it's some 300 pages long and it probably, while it, you know, exonerates in terms of criminal charges, Donald Trump, it may say a variety of very interesting and troubling things about, you know, the relationship between certain Trump associates and, and Russia. And, you well, know, we know it was bad. You're not contesting the exoneration on the collusion charge, though, are you? I mean, No, I'm not con- contesting that there are no charges on collusion. I think something we need to talk about is Trump's brilliance in setting the bar for whether this was a legitimate story or not was collusion. He He's the first one to keep saying no collusion, no collusion in his tweets. And that set a very high bar uh, for well, is clever. You said brilliant, which the New York Times never does. I would say the New York Times' coverage wasn't the worst on Russiagate, but it enabled the worst in two ways. Complete obsession with Donald Trump in the White House. And secondly, a kind of eternal Russophobia. They're up to no good. They're invading our election process. We, we virtually de- we sold Boris Yeltsin in his re-election campaign in 1996. Time magazine said, we did it. It's well established. We never acknowledge that the Russian interference has got to be seen with ours. Endless interventions, not only around the world, over and over and over in Latin America. And we're shocked that they may have helped somebody send a Facebook message. Anyway, uh, put that in proportion to the Times. Uh, it has lost its cool around this whole subject. Well, I think that there's been a collective judgment at the paper that Donald Trump is unfit for this, the office of president. And, you know, I happen to think that that's true as well. And I would say, too. But then again, there's an election. Right? We yeah. had an election. We did have an election. And I believe completely and wholly in the democratic process. But the only reason that we know the things that we're talking about on this show is because of the investigative reporting of the, the Times oh, and no, the Washington Post. Then you, Brennan handing people rumors, this is not investigative reporting. Yeah, but we don't know that Brennan was the key source for you know the, the reporting of either. The, the Times or the Post. We don't. I know we saw him on MSNBC almost nightly, which right. is, you know, insane. And I certainly agree, you know, with with you that the cov- there's too much coverage of, quote unquote, Russiagate. I mean, on some days, the New York Times would have, you know, four different stories on different prongs of this. Consider consider one little reform if you or I were running the paper. Um, Would we say when uh, there's a flood of unattributable information coming from the intelligence agencies, Mm -hmm. it's got to be put that way? 
Yeah, and I I think there, you know, the the comparison to the Iraq war is valid because that certainly should have, you know, made a a, a big created a huge lesson for the Times, the Post, virtually all of the media, that you have to be skeptical about what government and former government sources are telling you. I want to get uh, Matt Tavey back. You said it was a kind of WMD delusion, Matt. Uh, How big was it? And how was the Times in the context of all the media? I, I just I have to address that because since the beginning of the story, I've been keeping a list of of news stories that have either been retracted or walked back. And the Times has really an atrocious record over the course of the last couple of years with some very important stories that were really narrative driving stories. Um, there was one called Trump campaign aides had repeated contacts with Russian intelligence uh, that cited four current and former American officials. And months later, uh, when testifying before the Senate Intelligence Committee, James Comey said in the main it was not true, but that was an important story. That that told America that the Trump uh, campaign had been um, doing something with Russian intelligence. The story never characterized whether it was witting or unwitting contacts. Um, there, there were many stories that were awful. They did the, the story uh, on the front page that linked Russian uh, bots to the Parkland shooting uh, incident. After Florida school shooting, Russian bot army pounced. And one of their key sources in that story was a guy named Jonathan Morgan from New Knowledge, who the New York Times later did a story on, less than a year later, uh, about how New Knowledge had faked Russian troll activity in the Alabama Senate election. And yet that story's still up there unupdated on the New York Times website. I mean, there's just countless stories of this type that are sourced to current and former uh, officials. And we, we just have no idea um, who, how much of this is true and how much of it isn't. And a lot of these stories are really important in shaping the public discourse about uh, about this story. And what fueled it, in your view, Matt? Was it, is it Russophobia? Is it embarrassment that Trump is a New Yorker, grew up in their midst, in the real estate business very much as the New York Times is? Or is it that he beat them overwhelmingly on the, in, on the Hillary campaign? Well, I think what, 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 what Ms. Averson just said about the, the collective judgment that Donald Trump is not fit to be president, and I think that's kind of a, rem- a remarkable statement for, um, you know, that's something that you can think, but, you know, if, that, if that's affecting your coverage of stories, then it's a, it's a really serious thing. You have to put that aside when you look at these stories, and, and especially in the wake of what happened with WMD, you have to be extremely careful about, about uh, taking the word of any uh, and, and, uh, unnamed government sources, especially from the intelligence community, and they were rampant in this whole affair. Would you and say I, the Times made him unfit to no. be president? N- no, but I, but the, I think there was. I think what her her words were was that was that there was a collective judgment that that he is unfit. Am, am I? Is that the way you put it? Yes. Meaning what, Joan? Meaning who was in the collective? The, the meaning that, you know, and I, I happen to think it's true and that there's ample 
well-reported evidence that you know he it is is unfit for for office. Uh, certainly, if I was running the news side of the of the paper as I did, I wouldn't let that you know my own view influence coverage. And we're talking but, about the story of but, Russiagate after Robert Mueller shuts down the investigation. Coming up, the master of satire and seriousness, the novelist Nicholson Baker in Maine, has an uncommon response to cable rage. This is Open Source. In recovery from the Robert Mueller deflation of the Russiagate scandal, with Matt Taibbi and Jill Abramson, late of the New York Times, and our guest Aaron Matei, once from Amy Goodman's Democracy Now!, he writes now in The Nation, he's a skeptical left-winger who critiqued Russiagate the story meticulously. By now, he says, the collusion case against Donald Trump is a humiliation for everyone who promoted it. I'm down to hear your hit list, Aaron, and how it compares with Matt's and Jill's. Yeah, there's too many uh, embarrassing stories to mention, but you know, I think Matt touched on it. The, you know, the dominant narrative we've been hearing about for two years is that there is uh, ample evidence of a Trump-Russia conspiracy, and that Trump and that Mueller was going to uncover it. Um, it's extraordinary that the New York Times published a story like the one Matt mentioned, where this claim that senior Russian intelligence officials were speaking to uh, uh, Trump campaign aides. And amazing, all the more amazing that even though James Comey testified to Congress, as Matt mentioned, that the story is wrong, that the Times never retracted that story. And I think that speaks to the level of journalism that uh, Russiagate engendered. It was just anything that could fit the narrative of collusion was promoted and uh, blown out of proportion. And all of the counter, it, it wasn't just, you know, putting out false stories like that New York Times one, but also was uh, it relied on ignoring all of the countervailing evidence that only a very small number of us were actually looking at seriously, because we have had a lot of evidence. For we example. Have had, well, you know, take, for example, the case of uh, George Papadopoulos. Okay. And um, it's important for several reasons. First of all, it was one of the first indictments that were handed down in the Mueller probe. And we also learned later on, not long after the indictment came in, that it was according to the FBI, that it was Papadopoulos' case that sparked the initial Trump-Russia inquiry in uh, July 2016. Um, now, I personally, I think like Matt, uh, doubt that explanation. I, I think that the Steele dossier played a bigger role than, than we've been told, and I think more reporting, and I think Trump's counteroffensive now with the Senate congressional committees will uncover more about that. But the the indictment of Papadopoulos uh, contained an interesting uh, phrase from Mueller, where it said that uh, basically this person who uh, Papadopoulos had spoken to, Joseph Mifsud, uh, the FBI, we later learned, got a tip that Mifsud had told Papadopoulos that the Russians might have compromising information on Hillary Clinton. And that's what sparked, we're told, the initial Trump-Russia investigation. And so Mueller's indictment of Papadopoulos has a line about Mifsud where it says that uh, Papadopoulos understood Mifsud to have connections to the Russian government. So understood Mifsud to have connections with the Russian government. And so that was widely taken, if you look at all the reporting, that Papadopoulos spoke to a Russian agent. 
when if you look at Mueller's uh, wording there, he's being very careful. He's saying what Papadopoulos understood Mossad to be, but that doesn't mean that that's what he actually was. And then, of course, all the evidence since then shows that he was not, because Mossad was actually interviewed by the FBI in right after Papadopoulos, and they let him go, and they never charged him. And we've heard no allegation or claim that he actually is a Russian agent. But when you look at them, the dominant reporting, when people adduce the key pillars of the Trump-Russia conspiracy theory, it's taken on faith that, you know, uh, that uh, Papadopoulos spoke to a Russian agent and that he was told about the Russian theft of the emails. When that's, uh, Mueller actually never even made that claim. That, that, that's an interesting detail. You say more reporting might have shaken this big picture, Aaron, and it's interesting. But I have to say, we have a free but not very contentious press in this country. The Times' rival in sort of top-notch journalism is The Washington Post, which was in lockstep with the story, if not you know, further along. Um, I wonder who, in fact, could have said, wait a sec, this is, this is a lot of nonsense. It's a lot of spy talk. And it's, it's questionable in every way, but maybe it's not true. Well, it's not a question of, of who, because we know who did it. Uh, people like Matt Taibbi, uh, people like myself, Glenn Greenwald, Max Blumenthal, um, Robert Perry, the late, great Robert Perry, who These helped good, break the... Good name. Help break the Iran-Contra scandal in the 80s, but who then was basically exiled from the corporate news media because he, you know, part, he was so determined to get the story right on things like Iran-Contra. So he founded his own website, Consortium News, and he and with RussiaGate, he pushed back from the beginning. So we know who did it. We just we know that they were we that we were ignored. Do you know so, why that that story uh, was ignored, Matt Taibbi and Jill? I want to know you. You know what might have shaken us. Well, you know, I think somebody reminding themselves in the editing ranks of The Times and The Washington Post that you have to press and 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 be skeptical and look for the holes in any story. They would have been called Trumpians, wouldn't they? I mean, there's not a columnist that was remotely near that position in any of those papers. Matt, this is is a, a strange myth. It's very much like the... Uh, unopposable Iraq war. I mean, there was no dissent in the big press on that blunder either. Yeah, it's funny. Um, I, it, at the end of the Iraq war, uh, Fairness and Accuracy and Reporting did a study and, and showed that um, the, the three big networks, along with PBS, in the three weeks preceding the invasion, they had, I think the number was 267 American guests on, and only one of them was against the war. Um, this was very similar. Actually, you know, Aaron and I and, and uh, the others that he mentioned, uh, Glenn and uh, Michael Tracy, uh, we were actually talking about this the other day. The last person who was on either CNN or MSNBC to even offer any kind of uh, countering point of view to this uh, was actually me uh, in the beginning of January of 2017. So that was quite a long time ago. Uh, basically, since the beginning of this scandal, there hasn't been any other point of view about this on cable news. How do we and have by the way, this double ditto mentality in our in our public conversation, Aaron? Well, just to just to illustrate the point further. Meanwhile, it wasn't just, of course, cable news. The New York Times, for example, had on its op-ed page none other than Louise Mensch, one of the most uh, deranged uh, and unhinged conspiracy theorists out there. 
so much so that I'm actually not convinced that she is sincere. I actually think I would not be surprised. I can't prove this, but I would not be surprised if she's actually playing the role of a uh, of a basically of a joker. Uh, yeah. Exactly. To discredit the the anti-Trump resistance because she's so out there. But because she was peddling all kinds of Trump Russia conspiracy nonsense, she got. Uh, on the op-ed pages of the New York Times, I think, which is one of the most humiliating things in the history of any media publication. So what accounts for this is, you know, this, you know, go back to Manufacturing Consent by Noam Chomsky and Edward Herman. The, yep. the unfortunately, our, our media is, opening, is, is operating within a power structure. And, uh, you know, that power structure would like, wants to uh, see narratives that reinforce uh, its own interests. And uh, it makes it very difficult to if you're skeptical of, of stories and you push back against stories that serve those interests to be taken seriously. And so you're pushed out to the margins. And there's, so there's an incentive structure in there to conform. In the case of Russiagate, it served many, I think, privileged interests. It served the interests of failed Democratic elites who lost to Donald Trump uh, and needed an excuse for their failure and also needed an excuse to not learn the lessons they needed to learn to really reform and start taking on uh, the privileged interests that they represent and who Donald Trump fooled voters into thinking that they were rebelling against by voting for him. Two it questions. Also, sir, two, two questions are, is the younger generation um, fortified, inoculated against this kind of groupthink, but also what kind of an investigation, Fulbright hearings, David Halbersam on Best in the Brightest on the, on the on the delusions of Vietnam, uh, Osai Hirsch, a new a new series or whatever. What kind of investigation would it take to rally that uh, that repressed opposition, which is to say the truth? Well, look, I mean, first of all, I can't speak for any generation, so I don't know. I mean, don't I speak hope... for it. Just estimate it. I mean, <laughs> well, what's going I, on? I I hope I hope that I mean, certainly the Iraq War was very disillusioning for a lot of people and. Perhaps Russiagate will be as well. And in terms of an investigation, you know, there was a proposal at the end of the Obama administration for there to be a bipartisan commission to investigate what happened, both of the alleged Russian interference and also the intelligence response to it. So this was reported in June 2017 by Greg Miller of The Washington Post. But guess who nixed the idea? Barack Obama. Hmm. Uh, it was uh, Barack. It was a uh, John Kerry, I believe, who pushed for it. But, but Barack Obama, strangely, and this is one. Uh, one facet that just does not make sense about this whole story. And Barack Obama nixed the idea of a bipartisan commission that could investigate this. I suspect is because Barack Obama, and you know, if you look at Barack Obama's public statements, he was pretty restrained. He didn't say very much. And I think that, that, that I, I suspect that's a reflection that he knew something shady was going on. And by the way, that shadiness, I believe, is going to help tr hand Trump a further reelection gift. Uh, as as we go into 2020, because now he'll be using the Senate committees to investigate intelligence abuses. And unlike Mueller, I, I think they're going to find, on, at least on the in terms of the Russia investigation, some damning stuff about the actual initial Russia investigation. That's my that's my guess. Do you do you want to guess, Matt Taibbi? Yeah, I mean, I, I I don't know exactly what they're going to find, but I but I suspect, uh, and from what I've heard. Um, there's certainly a lot of circumstantial evidence to indicate that there was some concern about abuses of things like uh, so-called about searches that the NSA was doing. Um, Admiral Rogers himself, the head of the NSA, went to the FISA court to sort of um, con essentially confess that there were some uh, irregularities going on with those kinds of searches. 
Um, so there's 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 probably um, these I would are individual searches. Just by the way, what's Matt Taibbi doing? Kind of thing. Well, yeah, I think it's it's sort of a backdoor way to to uh, unmask individuals. Right. Obviously, the NSA is collecting information uh, constantly, but they're not they're not supposed to sort of look at individual uh, communications, knowing who the people are. Let me ask you all a, a quick question: If Donald Trump said we've got to get to the bottom of this, we need an investigation of the investigation, how many people in the press and who would say, "Yes, Mr. President, we hate you, but we got to do it," Joe? Well, not many now, but let's see what the, the Mueller report says. Uh, again, there's so much speculation, even by, you know, your 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 two guests who were just analyzing everything. We it, it, it's we don't know. And I can't I'm not going to predict what the coverage is going to be. Um, I don't even know what a Senate investigation is going to produce. Who would want uh, to investigate it? And I don't mean... The, um, the Vichy, you know, Republicans on the Senate <laughs> would, would want to, and they have, you know, their contacts in the press. Aaron Mate, who would support it? Who would support an we, investigation of the investigation? I think we all should support an independent investigation into, uh, into the investigation, and there's reasons for that. I mean, we even if you hate... We won't get to them tonight, I'm sorry to say, Aaron. We're going to do this again, though. I, I thank you for joining us for the first time, and Jill Abramson and Matt Taibbi. There's a whole lot to think about here. I have a feeling this story is going to be with us maybe forever. Nicholson Baker gets the last word. He's an omni-writer. He can go long or short, straight or loopy. He's the novelist of Vox, about phone sex. A monumental historian, too, of human smoke, about World War II. In Russiagate season, the Columbia Journalism Review asked Nick Baker to immerse himself in the cable coverage, starting with Fox, CNN, and MSNBC. He gave us a spoken summing up, Baker style, of his piece titled, My Brain on cable news. I, I was fascinated by the technical difficulty, miraculous complexity of mounting cable news, of giving people events, crises, things to worry about, surprises all day long around the clock. It is kind of an amazing technical achievement. And it is entertainment. I mean, we're talking about creating out of things that are tragic, horrifying, <laughs> miserable making. We're making something else, which is a massaged creation that is the news, that is much more entertaining than the thing itself. What did you learn about what Donald Trump did or didn't do with the Russians in his presidential campaign? The period in which I was looking at the cable news Everybody knows that there's something was going on, and everybody was just simply waiting for some kind of official confirmation that something was going on. I don't want another country attempting to influence the process of choosing leaders in this country. 
Uh, the United States has a long history of doing that, and we all know that, and it's something that the Russians actually learned from us. It was the U.S. Information Agency and, and the State Department and the CIA, and beginning with the Italian elections in 1948 and continuing on through untold number of countries that we attempted to inject American DNA into another country's leadership. And it's been recombinant a covert action for decades. So now Russia is messing with us, and they shouldn't be, and we should be outraged. But it just doesn't get to me, because I have so low expectations for someone like Donald Trump that I'm just not... I don't think, well, he should be above that or something, because I think this is the level on which he operates. You know, he wants to build a fancy place for people to sleep in a foreign capital, and he's going to, you know, work the room. He's going to talk to people and try to get some deal done. That's what he does. Everything that cable news is trying to help us with is worth thinking about. But they amp it up, and they, they ride the dial, and they do things to what merits close attention in a way that distorts what's there. I just think that basically what we all need to do is take more breaks. There are many beautiful podcasts and beautiful poems and books and, and TV shows and all sorts of things, but they each need to be surrounded by a kind of muffling envelope of silence. There needs to be more silence, more moments in which we're doing nothing except thinking about what we just learned. So we need to just, I think, do other stuff, turn everything off. And I'm a real believer in children and dogs and cats and pets, animals. There's a lot to be learned from the expressions of animals, and it doesn't have to do with words and, and commentators. It just has to do with these kind of deep feelings of affinity. Those things are worth paying attention to. And sometimes I think that all of the explanations and all of the talking, the kind of talking I'm doing right now, is a distraction from the fact that we are people who can look at a dog's eyes and say, oh my God, what a beautiful face. You know, or a person, just to look at something, or a tree. I mean, God, the trees have so much to tell us, and it's beyond words. It's great, but it's not necessarily color commentary. You'll find the full Baker Report at cjr.org. Thank you, Nick Baker, and Masha Gessen, too. Our show this week was produced by Connor Gillies, Rebecca Panovka, the artist Susan Coyne, and our engineer, George Hicks. Mary McGrath is our chief conspirator. I'm Christopher Lydon in collusion with her. Join us next time on Open Source.